0: Okay, Hey, let's bow for a moment of prayer, then we'll begin. Father, thank you, Lord, for tonight, a chance to be in your word, a chance to once again look at the future, realizing, Lord, that uh, you have mapped it out in all the details you want us to learn and know and understand. You haven't given us too much, and you haven't given us too little. You've given us just enough to know what it means to trust and to believe in you. And, Lord, there's been so much prophecy that's been fulfilled because as scheduled, you gave it, and it happened just as you said. And so, that, Lord, that gives us even more of an anticipation of the future. Help us, Lord, to live in that anticipation, realizing, Lord, that the things that we learn about your coming again and all of the events surrounding that are extremely important. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 11 Daniel 11, we're moving quickly through the book of Daniel. Uh, We'll spend one week on Daniel 11, that's this week. Next week, Daniel 12, verses 1 to 3. And then we'll finish Daniel the following week. So three more weeks in Daniel, including this one, and then we'll be done. If you have missed anything, you can always go on the website and uh, download it and listen to it just in case you might have missed something. Uh, But it's available to you. So as you look at Daniel chapter 11, I just want to remind you that, you know, so many times we can get lost in the details of the history. And I don't want to do that with you this evening, and so I've purposed in my heart not to do that with you this evening. And so we're going to approach Daniel chapter 11 in a little bit different kind of a way, simply because everything in the first 35 verses of Daniel has to some degree already been covered in two previous visions. And because they've already been covered, and we've talked to you about them, I am not going to take you back through them again. Instead, I'm going to pick up the narrative in verse number 36 and take you to the end. Why? Because the first 35 verses are prophecy already fulfilled. Verses 36 and following are prophecies yet to be fulfilled. In other words, when Daniel received the vision, the revelation concerning this vision, it had not yet been fulfilled. So it was all future for him. But if you were to go back and read the annals of history, you will be able to follow right along with Daniel chapter 11 verses 1 down through verse number 35 and see that everything happened as the Lord had prophesied. But when you come to verse number 36, none of those things have taken place yet. That takes you further down the road. And so that's where we'll pick up the narrative when we finally begin this evening. But let me say this to you, that when you realize that Daniel 10 was specifically about a divine vision, where the pre-incarnate Christ would show up and Daniel would see that, And not only was it a divine vision, but there was also an understanding of demonic conflict because there was, in verse 1, a great warfare, a great conflict. And we were able to understand that, that Daniel 11 shows us how it is that the nations are controlled by demon forces. There is a Uh, A battle that happens, it wages war in the principalities and powers of the air, and there are satanic forces at work. And Daniel 11 opens the door for us to understand that even all the more. So when the angel says, I wanted to come to you, it took me 21 days to get here, that's because I was fighting the prince of Persia, a demon in Persia. He says, and then I'm going to go and fight the prince of Greece, I'm going to fight him. Because that's what's happening in the world, even as we speak all around us today. We don't see it that way, but that's exactly what's happening. In fact, it's, it's illustrated quite readily in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 16. Listen to what it says in Revelation 16, verse number 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, And out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's the unholy trinity, right? Satan always tries to counterfeit all that Christ is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that's the holy trinity. This is the unholy trinity. And it says, coming out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. So how does Satan get the kings that are left to fight in a battle against the great war of God? He has to do it demonically. Why? Well, if you read about the bowls of wrath, and you read in verse number 8 these words, "...the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory." Then the fifth angel poured out his bull on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. So you've got to realize that when you come to the bull judgments in Revelation 16, you're at the very end of the tribulation, and they happen in rapid succession so quickly that people's lives are being burned. They're in so many, uh, so much pain that they chew off their tongues to redirect the pain of the burn so that they chew off their tongues in their mouth. Well, you got a lot of people in a lot of pain. So how do you get them to gather together? Demon possession. And so the dragon, who's Satan, the false prophet, Antichrist, they work in unity. And they have these demonic spirits that come forth from them, that they might gather the kings of the east together. The kings from China, the kings from the Japans, the th- kings from everything east of Israel. And notice what it says. It says, it gathered, to, gathered, gathered them together in the valley of Megiddo. Do you know the Bible never says that there's a battle in Megiddo? It just says they gather them together in Megiddo. they got to gather someplace, right? And this is where they're going to gather. But the Bible never says that there's a battle of Armageddon. We have a lot of movies about that. A lot of people talk about Armageddon, the end and the battle of Armageddon. But the Bible never says that there's a battle with the great god of the universe against the armies of the world in the valley of megiddo and we know that simply because it says they gather there so where is the battle well isaiah 63 tells us where the battle is it tells us verse number one who is this who comes from edom this is isaiah's vision with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah, raw The one who is majestic in his apparel. Marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness. Mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger. And trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. In other words, what Isaiah sees is the Messiah coming with all of his garments stained already with blood. So why is that? It's because he has a vision of Edom. And Christ comes with the colors of Bozrah. Bozrah was known for its dyeing of garments. And Bozrah is the ancient capital of Edom. And Edom is 25 miles from Petra. And Edom is the wilderness. Revelation chapter 12. Where Israel gathers and they flee Jerusalem, they flee to the wilderness, and that's why that is where the battle begins. Because that's where, after they're gathered together in the valley of Megiddo, they make their way down the Jordan Valley and they make their way down through uh, the uh, the wilderness to Edom. Because four, five different times in the Old Testament, God has made it very clear that he has a a sword specifically meant for Edom. And that's where that final battle will begin. It begins in Bozrah. And we know from Revelation chapter fourteen. If you go back there, you don't have to, but I'll read it to you. Revelation chapter 14, it says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came up from the, from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Maybe your Bible says 1,600 stadia. Well, it's 198 miles from Edom, Bozrah, to the valley of Megiddo. And so the blood flows basically all throughout Israel as you begin to understand the battle. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that specifically because the only way Satan can gather everybody together is through demon activity. And Revelation 16 tells us that. What Daniel sees in Daniel 11 is an understanding of the, um, not just the divine vision of the Messiah, but the overwhelming conflict, demonic conflict, that happens and is in operation all throughout the nations of the world, even as we speak. That's why Paul gives us that whole scenario in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 12, about the armor of God and the battle that we all face. Right, The battle is not a flesh and blood battle. The battle is against the, the, the forces of wickedness. And we need to understand this because when you think about what's happening in our country, when you think about this whole avenue of, of abortion and this big battle that's coming down the pike even as we speak, the, the battle's not about abortion. The battle is, is, is with God. They hate God. The whole transgender movement is a movement against God. It's it's against Christianity. It's against God's design of man. They want to rewrite the definition of man. They want to rewrite the definition of a woman. They want to rewrite the definition of when life begins. You can't do that. And so their whole battle is not against flesh and blood. It's really against God himself. They're fighting against the true and living God. And so Daniel sees all this in Revelation 11 and begins to understand this demonic warfare that's taken place. And on top of that, Daniel was also able to understand that everything was divinely decreed because the Lord made it very clear. I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of the truth. And then in chapter 11 verse number one or verse number two and now i will tell you the truth this is the truth about the end this is the truth about israel remember it's all about israel and what happens to this nation and how everything in the whole world revolves around the central portion of the world which is the nation of israel Everything centers around uh, an arena that's no bigger than the state of New Jersey. But that's Israel. And God is orchestrating everything around it to bring about ultimately a purpose where he redeems his people, Israel. That's very important to understanding prophecy. And so, we told you last time that if you understand Israel, you understand prophecy. If you don't understand Israel and their history, you have a hard time deciphering prophecy because everything is about Israel. And so we need to understand that because this is God's elect, God's chosen people that he has promised to redeem. That's why Paul says in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved as we begin to understand more and more about what God is doing with the nation. Now, Having said that, you need to realize that we are in the the throes of the times of indignation. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about the times of the Gentiles and the times of indignation? You need to understand those times. In fact, it says back in in Daniel, uh, the eighth chapter, these words, Daniel chapter eight, it says, So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. And that time, verse 19, is the final period of indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. What is the time of indignation? The time of indignation begins in 734 B.C. How do we know that? Book of Isaiah, 10th chapter, 5th verse. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. The times of indignation is when God himself is indignant against his people, Israel. The Bible tells us later on in Isaiah chapter 10 more about this time of indignation. But it began in 734 BC. It happens as a result of Israel's rebellion against their God. And the times of indignation begins in 734 BC and runs all the way to the end. The end of the tribulation period. The end until God redeems his people Israel and the kingdom of God is set up. That runs to some degree parallel with the times of the Gentiles. The times of indignation is God's dealing with his people Israel. The times of the Gentiles is how God deals with the Gentile people who try to suppress the Israeli people. The times of the Gentiles begins in Daniel chapter 1, verse number 1, in 605 BC. That's the times of the Gentiles. And that's why we told you in the book of Daniel, the times of the Gentiles represents Gentile supremacy under the direction of God's sovereignty. God is using the Gentile nations to ruin ruin and come against Israel. But only for a while. That's the times of the Gentiles. But that's all going to come to the end as well. So the times of indignation begins in 734 BC. Israel has rebelled against their Messiah. They have come against their God through all their immorality, through all their idolatry. They have refused to repent. And so God is indignant with Israel. And so it begins with the Assyrian captivity. Then it leads to the Babylonian captivity. And then it leads all throughout the rest of the history of Israel with this, with God dealing with Israel because He's indignant against them. It doesn't mean He's written them off. It doesn't mean He's done with them. He's just indignant with them. And it runs all the way to the end until the, the Messiah comes again and sets up His kingdom. The times of the Gentiles begins in six oh five BC with the Babylonian captivity. So the times of Indignation begin with the Assyrian captivity. The times of the Gentiles begins with the Babylonian captivity. And that too runs all the way to the end of the tribulation until Jesus Christ comes again and sets up his kingdom. Why do I tell you that? Because you need to understand that when you come to verse number 35 of Daniel chapter 11. So if you're in Daniel 11, let's begin. Daniel 11 says these words. Verse 35. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. Because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now, the Lord makes it very clear that there's an end time. It's called the latter days, back in chapter 10, verse number 14. Now, I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people, that is Israel, in the latter days. That's an eschatological term dealing with Israel in the end times. When you come to Daniel chapter 11, what you have is you have a history. In verse 2 of Azareras, or King Artaxerxes. He's the first king. He was ruling in Persia during the time of Esther. From there you move to Alexander the Great. We've already covered him. And then you move from him to Antiochus the Great. And then you move... From him to Antiochus Epiphanes, and we've already talked about him. These are rulers in Greece, and then you come to the Antichrist in verse number 36. There are a lot of people who believe that 36 is a continuation of the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes because there was an abomination of desolation earlier up in verse number uh, 31 that he commits, and we told you before that's when he took a pig, set it on the altar in the sanctuary, he brought an abomination into that sanctuary. But remember verse number 32, Daniel 11. It says, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Do you know who that is? That's the Maccabean family who led a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. And when they led a revolt against Antiochus, three years later to the day, on December 25th, 165 B.C., they were able to overthrow Antiochus, drive him out of the temple, and they had enough oil to fill a menorah for one day, but it stayed lit for how many days? Eight days, right? So what do you have? You have, to this day, the celebration of Hanukkah, the festival of lights, the the festival of dedication. The people who know their God display strength to take action. And how was it they were able to overcome Antiochus Epiphanes, this man who created such great abomination in Israel? Simply because these men knew their God. They displayed strength and took action. But some would think that even as you read on, verse 36 and following, deal with Antiochus Epiphanes, the one who saw himself as divine illumination, divine light. But he wasn't, because what you're going to read Didn't happen with Antiochus Epiphanes. It's yet to be future. And how do we know that? Well, look what it says in verse number 36. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until what's next phrase? The indignation is finished. Now you have, again, the phrase dealing with the times of indignation. What is that time? It's a time where God is indignant against his people Israel because they've rebelled against him. They've committed idolatry. They've been involved in immorality. That's why Jeremiah prophesied. That's why Isaiah prophesied. That's why Daniel prophesied. That's why Ezekiel prophesied. Hey, guys, get your act together. You've got to repent. You have turned against the true and living God. So you have all these prophets prophesying and that's why Christ says oh Jerusalem Jerusalem you who kills the prophets because that's what they did they didn't like what the prophets had to say so they killed them they don't want to hear the truth better to get rid of them than to listen to what they had to say and so they kept preaching the truth and kept calling people back to repentance calling them back to the truth but they would not follow that's the times of indignation until you had the fulfillment of the 70 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. So Daniel 9, 24 to 27 is very important to understanding Daniel chapter 10. Daniel 10 helps you understand Daniel 11. Daniel 11 helps you understand Daniel 12, right? But if you miss Daniel 9, 24 to 27, the 70 weeks prophecy, you forget that there's coming a time where God's going to seal up the prophecy. Remember we talked about that? What does that mean? It means that all the prophecy dealing with the uh, judgment of Israel is going to be done. He's going to be finished. But when does that happen? Not till the times of indignation are completed at the end of the age in the latter days. You still with me? You following me? This is good stuff, man. Hang with me. It's going to get better. I promise. So how do we know there's a break between 35 and 36? How do we know that there's a different king that arises? For it says in verse number 36, it says, then the king will do as he pleases. What king is that? Is that Antiochus Epiphanes from the, from the previous verses? Or is that a new king, the Antichrist? I think it's a new king, the Antichrist. Why? Number one, Because the time of the end. He tells us this is the end. This is an appointed time. It is a time of indignation. And that is the time of the end. It's an eschatological term. So Daniel's day or 165 B.C. is not eschatological. The book of Revelation is eschatological. That takes us all the way to the end until the king comes again. So because he uses the phrase, the time of the end, also the scope of prophecy. Verse 14 of chapter 10 tells us that all this is going to take place in the latter days. This is all for Israel. So what's going to happen with Israel in the latter days, which is an eschatological term as well. And then it says this. The historical record in verses 36 to 45 cannot apply to Antiochus Epiphanes because he never wanted to magnify himself as the God. But the Antichrist does. And the things that the Antichrist does, Antiochus was not able to accomplish. On top of that, you have the timing of God's final judgment, which is he will prosper until the times of indignation are completed. And you must understand also that there is a description in chapter 12, verse number 1, that says this. Daniel 12, verse number 1. Now, at the time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So, at this time, when this is all completed is when your people will be rescued. Well, when is that? That's not till the Messiah comes again. Zechariah 12, verse number 10, right? Revelation chapter 19. Now remember, Christ uses this phrase in Matthew chapter 24 when he says this, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Christ refers to the time of distress that will happen upon the world that has never occurred until now, that is, in the latter days. So Christ would affirm that what Daniel is speaking of in Daniel 11, leading to chapter 12, takes place in the future, not under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. And then, of course, if you go back, you realize that the whole prophetic context of the previous three prophecies in Daniel, the three visions in, in Daniel always ended with the topic surrounding the coming of Antichrist. Why wouldn't the fourth one do the same? You see, there's, there, there's great parallel in the visions. There's great parallel in the prophecies. We've told you, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar's dream, whether it's Daniel's four visions, they're all parallel. They all run along the same timeline. They all involve the same kings. They all involve the same countries, the same empires, right? They all virtually run parallel one with one another. Each gives more information concerning the previous one. Once you understand that, you begin to come to grips with what the Lord wants us to understand about the end times. Okay? So, go back to Daniel 11, verse number 36. It says, then the king, what king? The Antichrist, will also will do as he pleases. How can he do that? How can the Antichrist do as he pleases? Well, look what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, say so he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one who is coming with the... With the accord and activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness. That's how he can do what he pleases. He can only do that under the direction of God himself. But he can do whatever he pleases simply because he does it with all the power and deception of wickedness. He does it with signs and wonders, and that's what the Antichrist does. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. We know we've already seen that he's a blasphemer. We already know that he sets himself up as God and magnifies himself as God. That is the abomination of desolation that Christ speaks of in Matthew 24. He's referring not to Antiochus Epiphanes, who did an abomination in the temple, He is speaking of the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, where the Antichrist sets himself up as God to be worshipped as God. Why does he do that? Because he can. He wants to. He has gained, gained the favor of everyone. He has won great battles. He's done marvelous things in his own mind. And so he's got the whole world to follow him. He's made everybody take the mark of the beast, right? You can't buy or sell without the mark. You can't buy food. You can't sell food. You can't do anything without the mark. But he's made everybody take the mark except for those who are believers. They won't take the mark and they'll be beheaded according to what Revelation 20 says. But he's able to deceive the whole world. And it says that... The God of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. There's that reiteration of what is decreed. It's already been written. Remember Daniel 10? I'm going to show you what has already been written down. Now he says in Daniel 11, I'm going to tell you what has been written. This is the truth. In Daniel Daniel 9, verse number 24, he says there have been 70 weeks that have been decreed for your people Israel. They've been cut out. Everything is decreed. Everything has been pre-written. Everything's already done in the mind of God. He's already got it all planned out. Very important to understand that, especially when we get to our end of our time this evening. Okay? He's all mapped out. It's all—it's all been decreed. And so he goes on and says these, these words: He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Or for the desire of women, some believe he's going to be a homosexual, some might even believe he's going to be transgender, maybe he's a transgender woman, transgender guy, who knows, but he has no desire for women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all, but instead he will honor a god of fortresses. That is, he's going to become a military power. That word fortress is used six times in Daniel 11, always is a military term dealing with armament. So he is going to be a strong ruler militarily, a God whom his fathers did not know, and he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses and with the help of a foreign God, which is his military God, and he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause him to rule over many and will parcel out land for a price. All you got to do is read Revelation chapter 13. And the rise of the Antichrist, the beast. And how he is, he gains power over the world. Read Second Thessalonians chapter 2. The man of lawlessness, the son of perdition. He's called the little horn in Daniel 7. The, Daniel 8, the king of fierce countenance. He's the beast of Revelation chapter 13. He's known by a various amount of names. But he is coming. It is going to happen. And he will come under the direction of what's been decreed by him by God himself. And then it says this, at the end time, that's an eschatological term, there's going to be a revolution. The king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots. This is the same prophecy that Ezekiel speaks of in Ezekiel chapter 38. The king of the north and the king of the south come against what king? The Antichrist. Now remember, the Antichrist, according to Daniel 9, confirms a covenant with Israel for one week, right? When that covenant is confirmed with Israel, that's when the tribulation begins. That's when the 70th week begins. It does not begin until the Antichrist confirms a covenant with Israel. And so now when you read this in Daniel 11, when he talks about the kings of the south and the kings of the north will storm against him with horsemen and many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through, he will also enter the beautiful land, which is Israel, and many countries will will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Why is that important? Why does Edom and Moab escape? Why are they delivered out of his hands? Because that's where Israel will escape in Revelation 12 to the land of Edom and Moab, the wilderness. That's why they're still standing. That's why they still exist. That's why they're not destroyed by the Antichrist. It's all been decreed. It's all been mapped out. You just got to learn to connect the dots from chapter to chapter, from, from uh, book to book, from verse to verse. And as you do, it all comes into clear focus. And so the Bible says these words, Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. Now this is what the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 38, because remember Ezekiel is a contemporary of Daniel. Ezekiel prophesied during the Babylonian captivity. So think about this. You're a Jew. You're in captivity. You've got Daniel and you've got Ezekiel. And they're prophesying about the end, helping you come to grips with all that's going to happen. And in Daniel chapter 37, there's this vision of the valley of dry bones. You heard about that vision, right? And Ezekiel has this vision of all these dry bones that all of a sudden are resurrected because they take on flesh, and Ezekiel 37 is very important because if you go to Israel today and you go on top of Masada, Ezekiel 37 verses 1 to 14 is the fragment that was found in the synagogue on top of Masada. And when it was when it, they were excavating it in the early 70s, 1974, Yagal Yadin, who led the excavation on top of Masada, when they found the fragment from Ezekiel 37, everything stopped. Everything became quiet because everybody realized that Israel was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel thirty-seven. In other words, there had been a national restoration of Israel during their statehood of 1948, and the and the prophecy was is that there would be a restoration of the people of Israel, a national restoration. But that's not enough. There has to be a spiritual restoration. So if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 37, it says this. Verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. Ah, they were there. In 1974. And so Yagal Yadin says stop. Listen to this. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves. And caused you to come up. Out of your graves my people. There has been a restoration. There has been a resurrection of Israel. They are back in the land. Now notice the next verse. I will put my spirit within you. And you will come to life. And I will place you. On your own land. That didn't happen in 1938. That happens in the future. That's New Covenant promise. That's from Ezekiel 36. 36. Jeremiah 31. That's all about New Covenant promise. When God puts the Spirit within us. And he walks among us. He walks in us. That's New Covenant promise. Yes, there's been a national restoration. But there has to be a spiritual restoration of the nation. That doesn't happen until the Messiah comes again. So within the same set of verses, you have the coming of Israel back into the nation. Physically, but yet there has to be a spiritual restoration of the nation. That doesn't happen until the end, the times of indignation is finished. But they don't know that yet. But they will realize that there needs to be a spiritual restoration. He says, then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Now, he's going to bring them back where? To the land. Why? Because they once again have to flee. So he's going to have to bring them back. So when does he bring them back? When they have a new spirit. When do they have a new spirit? When they've been redeemed. And where does he bring them to? He brings them to where? The land. The land. In other words, Israel receives the land. The promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15. An unconditional, irrevocable covenant. That means that Abraham, no matter what he did, the covenant will be fulfilled. Because God himself made a covenant with himself. God didn't make the covenant with Abraham, made it with himself. Abraham didn't pass through the animals, the dead animals. Abraham did. It's an unconditional, unilateral, irrevocable covenant that God made with himself, to make sure Abraham knew that no matter what happens, the land is yours. No matter what you do, the land is yours. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter what happens, this promise is solely dependent upon me. So when you come to Ezekiel 37, God says, we're going to bring you into the land. So when you come to Ezekiel 38, what do you have? You have the kings of the north, the kings of the south, like it says in Daniel 11, coming against Israel. So who fights the battle? The Antichrist. He's the one who is the king who fights the battle. This is not Christ's battle. This is Antichrist's battle. And God makes it very clear. He says these words. Now remember, in Ezekiel 38, three things must happen. That's why this has not already happened yet. There has to be Israel who's present in the land. That's there. That's happened. They're there now. They have to be prosperous in the land. That's Ezekiel 36, uh, 38, verse number um, 12 and they have to be at peace in the land they live in unwalled villages they're a great peace in the land they're not at peace in the land yet so this happens during the tribulation why are they at peace in the land? because of the Antichrist he's made a covenant with them he's made a pact with them they're at peace with him he makes sure that they live in peace they live in unwalled villages they're not able to worry about anything else they're secure Their temple has been rebuilt, and everything's going as planned. They think he's their Messiah. That's why they built the temple for their Messiah. He's anti-Messiah, but they think they built it for him. But the kings of the north, the far north, is Russia. The kings of the south, Egypt, Africa, they come against him. And you know what happens? God destroys the king of the north and the king of the south. Antichrist thinks he does it. God says, no, i just read Ezekiel 38. I do this. I'm going to do it. Why? So now the Antichrist gains worldwide recognition as the ultimate military ruler because he has set up a kingdom of fortress, as Daniel 11 says. He's a military power. And that peace begins to be even better for Israel. And then it says in Daniel 11, these words... Go back to Daniel 11 with me. I know I'm trying to hurry through this because we got a little bit of time. Verse 44, but rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will. Why? Because once he destroys the kings of the north and the kings of the south, there's going to be more wars to fight. But you'll destroy them all. And that says this. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion Between the seas, what are the seas? The Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. It says, and the beautiful, holy mountain. Where's that? That's Jerusalem. This is where he sets his royal pavilion. Because he sets himself up as God to be worshipped as God. As king to be worshipped as king. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. So the Lord wraps it up real quick. doesn't go into great detail, but it will come, he will come to his end. How will he come to his end? He'll be slain by the sword of the mouth of the Lord who returns in Revelation 19. That's how it happens. Just that quick. But what Daniel is getting is a futuristic picture of what's going to happen down the road. As the previous visions ended with the reign of Antichrist, so does this one. But with the reign of Antichrist came a a stone, right, that crushes the ten ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's image. In Daniel 7, it's it's the coming of the most high God, the, the, the one like a son of man coming down, right, who's going to destroy Antichrist. There's always a destruction of the Antichrist at the end to give Israel hope that the Messiah is going to come. You see, Israel always had this hope because God made a promise to them. Now listen carefully. I am truly, in the depths of my soul, a pre-millennial person. I believe that the king will come, and I believe the king will sit on the throne of his father David, and I believe the king will rule in Jerusalem, in the land. That's as Ezekiel 37 says. Ezekiel 37 goes on to say further that the king will come and give them their land even further. They're going to have a land because God made a promise to Abraham that's based on God's forbearance, God's faithfulness, right, and God's promises. God made a covenant with Abraham. But you would think with all the people that do not believe in a literal kingdom upon the earth, That somewhere, somehow, there would be a verse that would tell us that Israel has been replaced. There's got to be a verse, right? There's got to be a passage. There's got to be an Old Testament prophet who tells them there's going to come a kingdom, but it's not going to be a literal kingdom. It's just going to be a a figurative kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom in your heart. But no, no prophet says that. Because they all believed in a literal kingdom. Now, you've got to follow this through with me. This is very important. And so the Jews, what do they believe? They believe in a literal kingdom, right? But if there was going to be a time where the kingdom would not come, but be replaced by the church, don't you think that Jesus would say that? He would have to say it someplace, Right? So John the Baptist comes, and he's a forerunner of the Messiah. What's he preach? The kingdom of God is at hand, right? That's what he preaches. To have a kingdom, you gotta have a what? A king. Well, the king has come. So after John the Baptist, Jesus comes, right? Right in the heels of John the Baptist. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's in your midst, right? Kingdom's here. I'm the king. But they rejected the king. But nowhere did Jesus ever say anywhere that, you know, the kingdom is really not a real kingdom. It's just a place where I set up my throne in your heart. He never says that. Now think about this. Let's say, let's just say, Israel doesn't reject the Messiah. Let's say that Israel embraces the Messiah. Let's say that Israel says, Jesus is the Messiah. He's our king, right? And they embrace him as their king. And Jesus said, if you'd accepted me as your king, John the Baptist would have been Elijah the prophet. But you didn't accept me as your king, so therefore Elijah the prophet is still going to come. But if they would have accepted him as their king, John the Baptist would have been Elijah the prophet of the book of Malachi in the book of Isaiah. And guess what would have happened? There would have been no cross. And if there was no cross, there could be no salvation. Think about it. That would mean, listen... That would mean the cross was always a contingency plan. It wasn't the real plan. It was a contingency plan made up in the mind of God. Well, you know, if they they embrace me, then then the cross is null and void. But if there's no cross, there's no salvation. But yet, what happens in the Old Testament? Isaiah 53. Prophecy about the death of the Messiah. Psalm 22, prophecy about the crucifixion of the Messiah, right? Psalm 16. All throughout the Old Testament, there's this prophecy. That's why when it was all said and done in Luke 24, what does Christ say on the road to Emmaus? Hey, guys, listen, how how foolish can you possibly be not to believe all the prophets said about what was going to happen to your Messiah? He was going to come. He was going to die. He'd rise again the third day. That was always the plan. But if Israel would have embraced their Messiah, they would have had their land. He'd have been their king on a literal throne, ruling from Jerusalem. But because they rejected their Messiah, because they turned their back on the Messiah, because they crucified the Messiah, you're done. It's over for you guys. You're done. No kingdom for you. No land for you. Nothing. That's not what happened. Why? Because the cross was always a plan. It was always plan A. It wasn't a contingency plan. It was the real plan. So you think that if the church was going to replace Israel and there wasn't going to be a literal kingdom upon the earth, Jesus would have set it someplace, or the apostles would have said it someplace, but nobody ever did. But if there's one place Jesus could say it, it's here. Because in the book of Acts, in the first chapter, after the resurrection, what does Jesus do? He spends 40 days teaching his disciples about what? The kingdom. 40 days. 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. This is after his resurrection. It tells us in verse number three. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of, the, speaking of the things considering the kingdom of God. So think about this. Jesus is your teacher. You're sitting down with him for 40 days. A crash seminary course on what? The kingdom of God. After those 40 days are all done, right, there's only one question that's asked. Only one question. Here's the question, verse 6, right? So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They didn't ask, Lord, why are you canceling the kingdom to Israel? Lord, why is now the kingdom a spiritual kingdom and not a literal kingdom? That's not the question they asked. They didn't ask that question. No. They asked a the question about time. When. They didn't ask where. They didn't ask why. They asked when. When. Now remember, every word of God is inspired, right? So they're asking God, when is this going to happen? And so, are you at this time restoring the kingdom to Israel? The word restore in every Jewish literature is a term depicting eschatological times. Without exception. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So here it is if Jesus is all millennial, now he's going to tell them. Right? Listen, if you're all millennial, you better make sure Jesus is all millennial. Because if he's not, you better change your view because you ain't like Jesus. So if you're all millennial, you better make sure Jesus is all millennial. Jesus now is going to say, hey, guys, what is wrong with you? I spent 40 days talking to you about the kingdom. Don't you, you forget? I told you. I canceled the kingdom. You guys you guys are wrong. How would you miss I told you it's it's going to be in your heart. I'm not going to rule in a land. You, the land is not yours any longer. It's over. You rejected me. You crucified me. You killed me. No longer. I've got this this organism called the church, and that's going to replace you guys, and they're going to receive all the blessings that you could have had, had you embraced me, but you didn't. But Christ didn't say that. But if there is a thing called replacement theology, there is a thing, what theologians call supersessionism, where the... Uh, church supersedes Israel and now receives the promises. If that's true, why didn't Jesus tell him right now, you guys got it all wrong? But he doesn't. What's he say? He says this. It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. This has all been fixed. Remember we told you way back, everything that's been decreed from the beginning, there's an appointed time for everything. When is answered by fixed? In other words, when is it going to happen? It's going to happen at the time that's already been fixed. So he affirms the kingdom of God. He affirms this kingship. Who brings the kingdom? The king, right? Nobody else can bring the kingdom but the king. That's the Messiah. So you would think that if Jesus was all millennial, now he'd say it. Finally he would say it. After he has been crucified, dead, buried, and risen again. But he said, I've come to die. That's the purpose of my coming. So he died. Rose again. But that doesn't nullify the promise because Israel rejected him. Think about this. If you're an all millennialist, you're going to have a hard time with sovereign grace. If you're an all millennialist, you have a hard time with sovereign grace. Why? Because that means you have no guarantee that what God promised you is going to take away from you. God promised unconditionally by his grace and by his mercy, a promise to Abraham and his descendants. That's completely all based on what God does, not what they do. But if there's something that Abraham and his descendants could do, that God would take away the kingdom from them, something that was given to them unconditionally, irrevocably, unilaterally, you have no guarantee your salvation will not be taken from you. How do you trust a God like that? can't but God is faithful and true to his word he never lies I am so premill it's it's I bleed premillennialism I believe it's true I believe the kingdom for Israel is true that's why they're given the land that's why they're given a covenant that's why they're given a promise I don't believe the church has replaced Israel I believe the church is the church, and I believe the church is recipients of new covenant promise because that's rooted in the cross, and cross is where our salvation is, right? But that does not negate the fact that because Israel is involved in the indignation of God since 734 B.C., it doesn't mean that God says, I'm done with you guys. No, he's still going to save Israel. And if he saves them, what's he saving them for? He's saving them because there's been a promise that a remnant will be saved. Everything is about the purging and purifying of Israel. Read that in verse number 35 of Daniel chapter 11. There's a purifying time. There's a purging time. And the ultimate perjurer will be the Antichrist. He will purge them out. He will kill two-thirds of them, and one-third will be left. Zechariah chapter 13, they will go into the kingdom because they have been saved because they look on the one whom they have pierced, and they mourn for him as an only child, and a fountain of blessing is poured out upon them. They're saved, and they go into the kingdom. If you're an Amalynist, you have to do spiritual gymnastics around every text in the Scriptures. Because there's no verse in the Bible that says the church has replaced Israel. Jesus was not amillennial. He was premillennial. He believed in a kingdom because he's the king. He wrote the book on kingship. So he knows exactly what he's doing. And so you would think, if you read through the apostles, that they would say something somewhere that, hey, guys, I know Jesus was pre mill but listen, we're all male, okay? There really isn't a kingdom for you guys. Try telling that to a Jew. Go evangelize a Jew today and tell them, hey, you know what? You guys aren't really getting a kingdom, okay? You're not going to get that because the kingdom is really going to be in your heart. That's where the kingdom is. They're not going to listen to one word you say. Because they don't believe that for one minute. And rightly so. They shouldn't believe that. It's not true. And so when you come to Daniel 12, you're going to see the arrival of the Messiah. And the setting up of his kingdom. And what that means for Israel. And for Daniel. Let me pray with you. Lord, thank you for today. The opportunity we had to study your word, it's truly a blessing. Please, Lord, go before us. Teach us that we might be able to teach others. Grow us that we might be able to grow others in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for those who came tonight. Bless them in a very special way. Cause them to take to heart the word of the, of the living God. To believe it, to accept it, but most importantly, to live it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.